0: This is episode number 199 Diversity and Representation with Aisha McGowan. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Slapping a
1: person of color on an ad campaign or hiring a black person just so you have them in the room or on the roster of employees is just not enough. And it happens all the time. There's just so many qualified people of color that can actually be in these positions of power and be in positions where they can make decisions. But if you just hire one person just to say that you did and then you don't listen to what they have to say or, give them any actual power or responsibility, then they've immediately become a token and you've made them that way. So I think tokenism is definitely a huge problem in this industry.
0: And if you're listening, saying, hey, Sonia, I thought that we heard from Aisha back in February, you did. And I wanted to actually replay this episode this week in light of everything that has been going on. If maybe you didn't get to it before, or maybe you just need a refresh, I think that this is a really powerful episode. And Aisha has had such an incredible voice for years in the cycling industry. Aisha is also known as A Quick Brown Fox, and that is also her website. It's aquickbrownfox.com. And on her website, you can find her podcast, her YouTube channel, and her very powerful blog. She is the first African-American female professional cyclist riding for Live Cycling, and she's on a mission to advocate for representation and as an inspiration for the next generation of African-American female cyclists. Her bicycle has been a tool to not only help her accomplish her dreams, but as a vehicle for storytelling and social change. There's been a lot happening with Black Lives Matter and there's been so much more information out there for people to listen more and to be more educated, to be allies and to be anti-racists. Something that was powerful for me to hear is that silence is an agreement and it's not acceptable and you have to speak up, but to speak up, you need to listen. And as Reggie Miller said in the Vela News podcast that just came out, We have one mouth and two ears, so we need to listen more. I'm continually trying to educate myself more and commit to the hard work of progress. And it all starts here. And there's some great resources I've linked in the show notes if you want to start educating yourself as well. And Aisha has done so much for years to be speaking up for how important it is to have diversity representation and how to really include and elevate people of color. Aisha's tagline is Representation Matters, and her voice and mission have created diversity across brands, media, teams, and organizations. If you just go to YouTube and type in her name, you'll get to see all these great videos that she's been doing for years, like you can find videos dating back to like 2016 and maybe even older. She's been on the cover of Outside Magazine, she's partnered with Nike's Dream Bigger video series, she's spoken on stages, podcasts written many articles on why it's important to have representation in sport in the media and in the industry. Recently, Aisha was named to the top 50 most influential people in cycling by cycling news for being an advocate for women of color in the bike industry. And I highly encourage you guys to check out her most recent blog post, which I've also linked to the show notes. Most notably, consistency builds trust. Do you get it now? And silence is an agreement. If you go find some of her content now, she'll be speaking to the events that have been happening. This podcast was recorded over the winter. So we talked about some other things, but how Aisha found bike racing and mentors, her journey into road racing, women's racing inspirations. We talked about representation versus tokenism, equality versus equity, why you shouldn't say I don't see color and people's implicit biases and how to be a better human. If you haven't listened to this, hopefully this is just the start of your introduction to the powerful work that she is doing, make sure you go check her out on Instagram and on her website. And before we get into it, I just want to say thank you again for being a part of my community and for listening to this podcast Super appreciate all of you supporting my work on Patreon and PayPal, and for those of you who have left reviews. And thank you so much for the messages you guys have been sending me, telling me how impactful this podcast has been, because that is why I do it. That is why I get up in the morning. That's what puts the wind in my sails. So I'm so, so thankful that I get to do this. And I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. So here she is, Aisha McGowan. Aisha, welcome to the show.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: I'm doing awesome. I heard that you are just finishing up your road bike ride. I heard the clip-clop of the road bike shoes.
1: Yep. Yep. All right. Taking snacks out of my pocket. There we
0: go. Post-ride <laughs> snacks are important. Yeah. Awesome. Like, so how's your year looking so far? It's creeping up really fast. It was last year, like a week ago. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What events do you have planned so far?
1: Uh, Then the first one up is Valley of the Sun in Phoenix. And then uh, Tour of Southern Highlands, which is here in Georgia. And then I don't remember as far as my brain is like dealing with at the moment. I think after that is Birmingham Hammerfest. I think that's in March.
0: Wow. those, Those are all pretty spread out. Yeah. I mean, it's like two weeks in between each of them.
1: So that's pretty good. And it's like... Pretty early still, so the the back-to-back stuff doesn't come for a bit, which is nice.
0: That's true. How'd you get into racing?
1: I was in advocacy for a bit and was trying new things and uh, did a track clinic. And that's how I got into sanctioned racing. But before that, just being in the bike community, I was doing all like galley cats and things like that. And so
0: unsanctioned racing,
1: but racing nonetheless, I guess.
0: And how did you start doing the unsanctioned stuff? Like who introduced you to the bike?
1: I rode bikes when I was little. And then Mm -hmm. when I went to college, I started using a bike to commute to class and then kind of just kept falling into different ways to use and enjoy bicycles. And one of them was unsanctioned breathing.
0: That's so fun. I mean, there's so many people that like learn how to ride a bike growing up, but then they just don't ride again. Or maybe they might not ever ride again. And I always love hearing how people found the bike, or I mean, some people might have stuck with the bike their entire life, but how just people have progressed from riding just kind of for fun or commuting to racing to making it more of a lifestyle choice.
1: I feel like it's pretty easy to get sucked in. (laughs) And I think I was just at, you know, it found me at the right point in my life where I could get sucked in and I didn't have... Um, like I didn't have like children or like something that would sort of slow that progression down. I feel like if I had more responsibility and, and things to, to worry about, I probably would have chosen a different trajectory, but I didn't. And so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yeah. And
0: you, and um, you yeah. said you took a, like you started on the track, but how did you get into road racing?
1: I mean, I started officially racing on the track and on the road around the same time. My commuting vehicle of choice was um, usually a fixed gear bike. And so that was pretty common with the unsanctioned racing, like uh, racing on a a fixie was pretty common. And so the track felt like a natural thing to do. But my first race was actually the Red Hook Crit, So it was kind of like doing a road race on a track bike. So (laughs) the two sort of went hand in hand from the start. But I got a road bike when I was training for that and just like immediately fell in love with how much faster you could go because you have brakes now. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, it was just a lot of fun. And so I just decided to
0: do both. And did you have anyone that you looked up to at the time or anybody that mentored you whenever you were first getting into racing?
1: There was a local gentleman in the New York City community where I started racing. His name was William Montgomery, and he pretty much kind of took me under his wing and was very encouraging for me to race and like try things and offered to teach me anything I didn't know and like like I always remember that I was super afraid to like reach down and grab a water bottle while also writing to me that felt like the most dangerous thing in the world and he didn't make me feel really bad about it he just kind of taught me how to do it so um (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) Honestly, like some of the stage races I do, the mountain bike stage races, they're like 2,000, some of them are like 2,000 person mass starts in a Peloton. And and I have to say, even now, I feel afraid sometimes to reach down and grab my water bottle when I'm in a Peloton like that. I think
1: we'd all be safer if more people were a little more afraid of that. <laughs> That's a good point, actually.
0: <laughs> so how has it progressed for you, you know, in road racing? Because I, th- I think a lot of people don't really understand How people progress and then how people become professionals as well. So, I'd love to hear like what your journey's been and where you're trying to go.
1: When I decided I wanted to become a professional, I didn't really know what that meant, what that looked like, and how to get there. So, for me, it was kind of just trying a bunch of things and throwing things at the wall and seeing, you know, what worked and what didn't. And the biggest thing was just racing a bunch. And it was a lot easier when I lived in New York and California, I felt like there were so many opportunities to race. And then when I moved here in Georgia, I have to travel to race because there's just not as much racing. And then when there is racing, there's not really a huge field for, you know, the higher levels of racing for women. So, but I just did a lot of racing when I first started that first year, I raced a bunch. and then. When I decided I wanted to go pro, I raced even more and just trying to get myself into harder races than I felt like I could do, if that makes sense, like not sticking to things I knew I could win and just really pushing myself because I felt like those were the the races where I learned the most and just doing that and getting knocked around a bunch until I didn't get knocked around as much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and like the whole points thing with upgrading, it can be tough because in road racing, especially like I, I only have done a few bigger road races, and it's been quite some time. But I never had a team; I was just out there by myself. And yeah, when you're out there trying to move up um, in the peloton or move up in your category, like it's really tough when you don't have a team. So how did you manage that? Well,
1: I never finished my points to get to category one actually, because when I moved here, I just couldn't race. Mm -hmm. races (laughs) for points like there just wasn't anything to race, and so i was on this like points chasing train for like several years in a row and then i just stopped chasing points but the beauty of that is that as a catch you can race pretty much everything so long as you find a a team or spot and most Mm -hmm. of the pro races In the States, at least, are one, two. And then with the UCI license, you can race, you know, whatever you need to if you're on the on the right squad. So it hasn't really been a barrier to not have that final upgrade. And I think just a lot of the way that the system works is super confusing because like we feel like there's specific rules that you have to adhere to, but there aren't. (laughs) And so it's kind of like part of getting this far was learning how the system worked and like learning what I needed to do and learning where I need to go, who I need to talk to and like just figuring out how the system worked or didn't work so I could race because the goal was always just to race. I just really wanted to race my bike. And so I just had to figure out what to do in order to be able to do that. But yeah, it, I also it, never had a team really. So
0: <laughs> it is, it is super confusing. And yeah, you mentioned like there at some of the bigger pro races, like there'll be teams, but then people get invited to be on the team, especially in women's racing.
1: Right. Yeah women's racing is a very special thing. And I think it's going to go through a lot of growing pains in the next couple of years, which I think is really exciting. And I can't wait to see what that looks like, but it's a very unique thing. And I I think it's beautiful in some ways and really frustrating in others.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like we could record an entire podcast about women's racing and then women's road teams. And there's just so much there and so much information for, for people like, what have been some things that you've noticed in women's racing that really have stood out to you that have inspired you?
1: I really appreciate how hard the women's peloton works, not even just in races, just like in general, like pro, female pro bike racers are amazing. Most of us have full-time jobs and also race and just still crush. And I think it's really unfortunate that the public, whatever that means, doesn't have as much access to see that as I feel like they should. Like, I think real, women's racing is really exciting and probably way more exciting than men's racing because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's always interesting, right? There's no, I mean, we have a few outliers, but there's not a whole lot of like domination, you know? So yeah. there's it, it's often anybody's game. And so that makes it really exciting to watch. And really exciting to experience, and like even while I'm racing, like sometimes I have to remember that like I'm also competing, and like not get super excited to to like see how the race will unfold around me, which I've gotten better at in recent years. But like that was probably one of the more exciting things for me when I was started racing at the pro level, just being able to like see the inner workings of all of that stuff and how like amazing it really was from the inside.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk about, kind of it's a, kind of a two-part question or comment, but I want to talk about representation of females in cycling. And then for you, like your mission is to become the first professional African-American cyclist ever, like female cyclist ever, which is so awesome and so inspiring. So yeah, with, with the challenges of like being a female and then also being like an African-American female, how has that presented itself to you and how like, has there been any major roadblocks for you where you felt like you couldn't do it? Well, I just
1: signed my first professional cyclist. Oh, you did. Congratulations. That's awesome. So I'm really stoked on that. Like it's been a long time coming, but I I did
0: it. Um, You did it. You're the first. And yeah, I mean,
1: your question is like the road here or like what specifically were you asking?
0: Yeah. Like the road to get here, like, cause you have to overcome barriers as a female first, you know, and it's, it's really hard as a female and then as an African American has there been any other things that you have come up as a barrier?
1: I think I mean we talked about the barrier of like the whole points chasing thing and finding mm-hmm. races that have, you know, big enough feel to compete in to get those points to get to the level that you want to get to. That's a challenge and then just knowing how to navigate the system is also a challenge. I feel like it's not really laid out very clearly. And there's so many ways to get to the pro level that like if you ask four different people, they'll all give you a different story of how they did it. And so there's not really like, like if you want to be a doctor, there's a plan for that, you know, like you know how to do that. But like becoming a professional cyclist as a, as a woman is really challenging because most of us don't find it until later in life, right? Like we're not all children when we start on this path. And so it's like you've got these adult women who are trying to navigate the system. There's a lot of you know, inequality in women's cycling, which is always an eye-opener. I think the best resource for understanding that would probably be Catherine Bertine's film, Half the Road. Um, and I watched that pretty early on when I started racing and it was, it was an eye-opener. It was just like, it's, it was kind of sad to see, you know, all of the inequalities that happen between, you know, men's, women's racing and road cycling as a whole is, you know, having a bit of a struggle at the moment. And so it's really frustrating to see that how much more of a challenge it was and still is for, for women, but things are progressing and things are getting better. And there are people who are, you know, championing for better, you know, more equality for women in, in pro cycling. So that's really exciting. Um, and then as an African-American woman, I think, see, it's not like the challenges and the barriers are not as obvious. It's more of a, like a a mental cultural thing where it's because I'm being vocal about it, then I have to also deal with the opinions of what other people think about me being vocal about it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, I don't cares of the world are fine. Like I understand that. And that's part of why I, you know, do it. It's, I think that a lot of people just don't, even think about it because it's not something that they have to think about. But I think it's really ridiculous that, you know, in 2020, we're just now getting, <laughs> you know, a female African-American pro cyclist. That's nuts, right? So I think it's something that we have to consider, like, why is this the case? Why it hasn't that happened? Why aren't there more of us? And not even just, you know, African-American women, but Black women, women of color in general, there's not a ton of us who, you know, race at the pro level. So there has to be you know, questioning of that, why is that happening or not happening rather? And I think if you're not affected by it, it's not something that you're going to think about. And so I think just having that authentic representation as somebody who is experiencing that firsthand, I think that's more effective of, you know, trying to show people that it's not happening and then maybe have this conversation of why it's not happening and then have the conversation of what, what we can do about it.
0: Yeah, and and why is it not happening? Like, what do you think? I'm sure
1: there are several reasons, but the thing that I focus on is representation. I think the industry itself, the cycling industry itself, does not do a very good job of representing people of color, women of color in cycling. And I think there are a lot of, you know, different kinds of people that ride bikes, not maybe race bikes, but definitely ride bikes, all kinds of people ride bikes all over the world. And when you have these industry advertisements and marketing or whatever, you always tend to see the same kind of person. And I think we've had a lot of progress in, you know, fixing that inequality. As far as women are concerned, you see a lot more women on bikes and there's more representation there, but there's a lot of other types of people that aren't being represented. And that includes people of color, you know, people with disabilities, people of different genders and social orientations and such. And so there's just a lot that the industry is leaving out. And when it comes to an economic perspective, if you're not marketing to everybody. You're also losing dollars, right? You're not bringing in that, that demographic of people that can spend money on your product when they see themselves on it or using it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, uh- in the outdoor industry in general like representation for women has been a big thing as you know and some of the solutions that i've seen are actually hiring people into marketing roles like hiring women or hiring you know people of color into those roles because if you just don't think about it then it's not going to really it's going to take more to change so who who these companies hire can also really make a big difference do you think
1: yeah i think that's probably the biggest solution i think hiring more people of color would make it so that it's not just a topic of conversation like it's a thing that matters to them as an individual when it's just like a a bullet point on a oh we should probably do this type of thing it's not gonna always happen right it's just gonna be another thing on the list that gets overlooked but if there's somebody there who's passionate about it and really cares about it and makes it a priority if it's a priority then it will get done but if it's an afterthought it's gonna just keep getting pushed on the back burner because it's not a big deal
0: Yeah. And another thing that I've been thinking about, which I don't really know how to articulate very well is representation versus tokenism. So like people, you know, a brand hires or sponsors somebody, so they have their token woman or their token African-American person and tokenism, I think implies someone who's underqualified and they just do it for visual effect instead of actually doing it because they want to make a difference. What has been your experience or your thoughts on that?
1: Tokenism is a huge problem just because because diversity is a topic for most of these companies, again, and not a priority or a passion. So it's kind of like they want to do diversity or they want to have diversity, but they don't really want to do it the right way. (laughs) They just want to look like they are. And so slapping a person of color on an ad campaign or, you know, hiring a black person just so you have them in the room or on the roster of employees is just not enough. And it happens all the time. There's just so many qualified people of color that can actually be in these positions of power and be in positions where they can make decisions. But if you just hire one person just to say that you did, and then you don't listen to what they have to say or give them any actual power or responsibility, then they have immediately become a token and you've made them that way. So I think tokenism is definitely a huge problem in this industry. I've been tokenized <laughs> a bunch in, over the years. And I think it's going to keep happening within the industry for a while until people really understand what good representation looks like.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's a quote that I wrote down that you said that I thought was really powerful. I'm just going to read it. Um, you said, showing up in a space where you don't see anyone that looks like you takes courage and a certain level of risk. You feel like you have something to prove, not just for yourself, but for everyone else you are representing. And to me, I was just thinking about that. And like, that's a lot of pressure. Like if, if you're trying to represent an entire race or represent an entire gender, how have you dealt with that pressure?
1: I try not to think of it as my sole responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think it's my job to be the representation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's my job to make people aware of the lack thereof and figure out how we can get better and more (laughs) representation. Mm -hmm. And I know that not everybody is willing to put themselves out there and I don't think that they should have to and I don't think that they're responsible to, but it's something that I have signed up for and agreed to do and made, you know, my life's work at this point. So, it's exhausting and I don't I still agree with that statement I yeah. like I have, you know, started to say no to things more often and more recently just because, you know, like going to white spaces and speaking to rooms where I'm the only person of color in the room or the only black woman, it's really hard because a lot of times you feel like, okay, are these people actually listening to me or are they going to feel good about themselves for five minutes and then just keep going back to what they were doing, before? you know, do it before. And so it's hard to like <laughs> keep doing that over and over again. And so I'm starting to be more, you know, selective about how many times I put myself in a room where I am the only person of color. But I've been thinking a lot about that and like trying to figure out how to, to change that, right. How to make it so that when I do go to these places, like, what power do I have to change that room a little bit? Like, can I make it so that there are other people with me? Can I make it so that people of color who want to attend these events can also do so? When I do like those, like the videos or like content that's made, can I make it so that there's a person of color on the team? Like who is telling these stories and who has power and control is all a factor of like what can make this less exhausting for me and then better for the next person.
0: Yeah. And like, what do you speak about whenever you go to those, like whenever you're writing your, your speech?
1: A lot of the stuff that we're talking about now, about representation, lack thereof, about avoiding tokenism, trying to get people to understand implicit bias and trying to understand that equality is not actually a solution, but equity is a solution. And like just a bunch of things that I think the industry doesn't fully understand and could do with a better understanding <laughs> of some of these topics. and trying to break this like cultural, not even barrier, but it just feels like there's a like a just a lack of understanding of a lot of things. And so just trying to make it so that it makes sense and like get them to see that these are human stories and like human people that this affects and that diversity isn't just a initiative. Like it's not just like a thing that can make your company look good, but it's like a thing that can make lives better and like like really make the industry a better place and as a whole.
0: And if someone listening just heard you say equality and equity, and can you say what the difference is between those? So inequality
1: is, or equality would be. Actually, my friend Sam had a really good example of her, and um, there's we did a panel at um, the Seattle Classic last year in Elliot was there, he's on the giant factory team, he's also a black man. And she was saying that equality would be giving her a mountain bike where she lives in Chicago and expecting her to be able to, you know, do the same things as somebody who lives in a place where there's also, you know, trails and mountains and things to climb and things to go down. You can't have equality if you don't make up that gap, right? So equity would be not just Giving people the same amount of money, but also giving them, giving the, the person who is, I'm having a really hard time with this right now. I think it just because I just rode my bike for <laughs> three right.
0: hours. That's all right. You're, you're doing awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, but basically, it's not just giving two groups of people the same thing. It's also giving the person or the group that hasn't had the same level of things for a while, the resources to also compensate for whatever they've been lacking for so long. So women in cycling have not had money. They haven't been paid. They haven't had the same amount of, they're not allowed to race the same distances. There's just a lot of things that are different about um, women cycling. So just giving them the same amount of prize money is not a quality. It's like, give them also the opportunity to race at the same levels, the, op- the resources to train at the same thing. So they don't have to also work full times just, giving them a real balance and not just kind of throwing some of the same things at both groups. Yeah. Did I do any better
0: explaining no, that? No, no, that, that actually does sound really good. And like, <laughs>
1: My brain is like looping right now. Like,
0: like, like you, you mentioned how like women have to work, and, and I totally agree with this, and I, I've seen this myself, like women just have to work so much harder than men, like women racing at the top pro level have to work harder. And yeah, like you said, that's not really equality. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Um, and as you've been going through this journey, what changes have you seen so far?
1: I think the biggest change is that people are talking about it, like they're talking about diversity and inclusivity and all of the things that they weren't really talking about before or acknowledging before. And that's such a big start. And I think that's the biggest noticeable change. I feel like there's more representation and it's getting better slowly. We're definitely not there yet. <laughs> but things are happening and progress is there.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, from you and hopefully this doesn't <laughs> this doesn't make you angry, but like there's I've heard you say over and over that it's frustrating when people say I don't see color. And uh-huh. it's and I personally will put my hand in the air and say that I have said that in the past until I started learning about you and and all the things that you talk about. And I think it's actually really hard for somebody that isn't in the same situation to say that. So can you talk about why that's actually not a good thing for somebody to say? Because it is, if it, when you really start thinking about it, it is kind of an insensitive thing to say.
1: Well, first, it's not a great thing to say because it's complete, it's a lie. It's like not, unless you cannot, unless you li- honestly literally cannot see color, <laughs> then you see it. Like you, yeah. if I walk into the room, you can tell that I'm a black woman or at least not a white woman. Like that is yeah. evident. And so to say you don't see color is just not, (laughs) it's just not right. It's not factual. But to use that as a like, I'm not racist type of, you know, statement. Mm -hmm. It's, you should see color. I think differences are beautiful. And I think we can celebrate our differences without discriminating. It's fine if you can see that I'm a black woman. I think it's wonderful. I love that you can see that it's how you use that and how your implicit biases kick in which are the involuntary things and reactions that result from just other aspects of your life based on the things that you've learned so for instance i'm trying to think of it's it usually leads to like stereotype types of things like i've had people say to me that oh black people don't ride bikes or ask me literally if i've stolen my bike oh. or things like that And that comes from implicit biases because of things that you've heard or things that you've learned along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you use your implicit biases as discrimination tools, then that's a problem. But to try and use I don't see color as a defense is just it's not right and it's not fair and it's actually frustrating because. I am not a white woman. And so my life is not the same as a white woman's life. And my journey is not the same as a white woman's journey. And for you to ignore that and to erase that is not okay. And it's not fair. And it's not what any of us want. I don't want you to use that as a reason to discriminate against me, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I think that people also say that because they're uncomfortable with the situation too. Like they want everybody to feel good in a room and they want to say like, Oh, you know, I I think, I think of you as an equal, but instead by saying that they discount what that other person's experience and journey has been. And that person and the person who said that might have, like you said, no idea what it's actually been like. Right. Yeah.
1: It's completely an erasure of who I am or, or who that person is, whoever you're saying that to. And so don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) just not a good one to say
0: yeah and i just think it's awesome that that you've spoken out against that because or about that because again like a lot of people just don't understand and all of the advocacy you're doing is really helping bridge that gaps with people's understanding i hope so (laughs) so i'm gonna bring up another hot button i want to talk about sea otter (laughs) okay yeah can you tell people what happened there and yeah i guess just start with that (laughs)
1: Actually had a really lovely time for the most part. But there was an interaction where, you know, over the course of the weekend there were different announcers who were saying like things that just weren't pleasant. Some things were sexist and it was just something that was happening over the course of the weekend. And so mm-hmm. by I think this was the last day, my friend was racing the cross country mountain bike race and the announcer made a statement and I was standing with my friend's partner who's also a person of color. Um, And my friend is a person of color. she's a black woman. And so when I heard this statement and he heard the statement, he asked me, like, what was that? Because it sounded really off. And so my initial reaction was that it sounded quite racist. And so I tweeted about it and it picked up a lot of steam. And I guess it got back to the announcers and they weren't very happy about it. And so they, they did clarify that first, the person who said it was a black man, which by definition means it cannot be a racist statement because black people cannot, you can't be racist if you're black, but you can't be discriminatory. But that's a conversation for a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. Regardless, it makes what I said not true. He was not saying a racist thing, but it does not mean that what he said was okay. And so we got to the bottom of it and he was quoting or trying to quote a sketch comedy show from like the 50s I think and he the character was a Nazi man so he was trying to mimic <laughs> trying to mimic a Nazi character from a sketch comedy show so his intentions were not terrible they weren't evil but it was still not appropriate for the venue and so that's kind of where I still stand on that but someone came to his one of one of his announcer friends came to his to his defense, but in trying to do so said a bunch of other things that were really not great. And so I, you know, took the time to write about it and try to explain why what he said wasn't great. And I think the article is a much better explanation than I'm doing right now. But I felt like it was important not to just say like, what you're saying is wrong, but like explain why it was wrong, because it seemed like a really good opportunity to break down a lot of things that happen constantly just in my work and just to people of color. It's like things that we experience constantly, but don't really have the opportunity to talk about because they're usually classified as microaggressions and you don't like people really have a hard time explaining what a microaggression is. So it was just a really good opportunity to, to break some of those down.
0: Yeah. And if you're comfortable, I'd love to hear some of those. And I think it'd be really important for the audience to hear some of those so that they can have a better understanding.
1: I'm trying to remember. I know, I remember one of them being, um, so the announcer was a black man and he has a daughter and his daughter was also, a, you know, a black girl who has curly hair. And his friend pointed out that, like, how could he have said something, you know, mean or awful because he has a daughter and she looks like you. And that's not fair because his daughter had nothing to do with it. And there's often this common thing of like using black people as props. It's like having the black friend. It's like, oh, I can't be racist because I have a black friend. And mm-hmm. that's not true. That's just like saying, I can't be racist because I have a black child. And it's like, yes, you can. You could always be racist unless you are a black person. Um, (laughs) In which case you can just be discriminatory, but you can't be racist. But you can't use black people as props to defend your behavior or defend your actions. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. I think he also tried to use one of the, one of his fellow announcers who was a woman to say, you know, she, they support women and, you know, they have a woman there and it's like, she had nothing to do with it either. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. she's also not, it's not okay to use her as a prop just because you've got women or black people in the vicinity, that's not enough to defend what you said. It has nothing to do with it. And so using black people as props is a is thing that's like a huge pet peeve for me. I really hate when people do that because it happens a lot and it's never a good defense. Um, and most people of color can see right through it, but for some reason it's gone and it, it keeps happening as though it's okay. <laughs> I'm trying to remember I, I've kind of blocked that whole thing out of,
0: <laughs> sorry to bring it back up again. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. I'm
1: looking for it now just to refresh my,
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that like, and this kind of goes be- even beyond this conversation, it could go into politics or anything when, when people say something and they screw up, instead of like try to make an excuse as to why they said it and making it worse in the process, they should just say, put their hand up and say, I screwed up and I need to be reeducated. And it's really hard for people to do that for, you know, because it requires you to be really humble especially in a public forum. (laughs) Well, I think we're also in the age where people think
1: the solution is to double down on whatever terrible thing they did. Yeah, (laughs) I I honestly don't understand it because I cannot think of an example where it went well for that person. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like just, if you make a mistake, it's okay. People make mistakes. But I think the reason that this blew up so much is because these two men had a history that was beyond me and not something that I even knew about when I made the statement that I made. But there are, you know, a lot of people that, you know, spoke up after the fact and saying, like, they've been doing things like this for years, but nobody cared and there's never been any, like, penalty for it and or any punishment for it. And so they just keep doing it because there's no consequences. And I don't think cancel culture is, first, I don't really think that's a thing, but whatever. But I do think consequences are necessary because if there are no consequences, then you don't, then what's the point? You don't learn anything. You're just going to keep doing it. And so I think it's important to speak up about things. And yeah, you can speak up in a respectful manner. But you should still speak up. I don't think we should be scared into silence because it's uncomfortable. And I think a lot of things get perpetuated because people are uncomfortable um, and they don't want to rock the boat too much. But I guess my whole existence in this industry has been rocking the boat since day one. So why not, right? (laughs) I'll just just say it.
0: (laughs) Uh, And it takes a lot of courage to do that because you know I would say, or I'll say I'm a people pleaser and it makes me uncomfortable to rock the boat. And there's been times where, As a female, you know, I was in engineering in school and I was the only, there's like three women in my entire program. And like, there were things that were said that were completely inappropriate. And just because it was a old boys club, like it just, people just got away with it. And I would have to like speak up and say something. And it, it is uncomfortable to do that. And I think it does take a lot of courage. And I think it's been really amazing that you've been able to do that and that you've been able to be that strong voice that not only Gives you your your own outlet, but it, it, you're really standing up for so many people and giving them a voice too.
1: I like to think that I am encouraging people to use their voice more, yeah. Because I feel like the thing that will help progress change more than anything is their power. There's power in numbers, right? And I don't believe in a mob mentality, but I think that if there's something that needs to be done and something that's worth standing up for. If enough enough people do it, then the change will happen. Right. And at the end of the day, it's all about money. Right. You have to think about like people are more concerned with losing money than anything. I think the reason that these announcers got so upset is because it probably got to the point where they were afraid it would affect their job opportunities in the future. Right. Where will people hire them again to announce if now they have this reputation as somebody who doesn't do a good job? And I think the simple solution is just do a better job. Like, I don't think anybody needs to be fired or I don't want them to not work anymore. I just want them to not say crappy things while they're announcing. That's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't think that's too much to ask, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, because you've done some really awesome media things through brands, like you have your Nike Dream Crazier video, and like you've been on the cover of Outside Magazine. How did you kind of bridge that gap into getting that kind of coverage and that that type of attention where you're able to get on those platforms and tell your story?
1: That's got very little to do with me, to be honest. I think it's just the idea that my story is more unique than other stories. Mm-hmm. And I think it just stood out in that way and people were interested in, in trying to do that. And the frustrating part of that is I feel like a lot of outlets wanted to tell the same story again and again and again. And like, I'm, annoyed with it. So I'm sure that someone else is annoyed with it by this point. Like, I I think at this point they got it, The you know, I started racing and then I wanted to become a pro and, you know, I'm a black woman and an African-American woman. Like, I feel like that story has been told a bunch of times. And I think there's so much more to say and so much more to do. But I think the idea, which is almost sad, really, the idea that an African-American woman wants to be in the pro Peloton and there had never been one was exciting and new and different and newsworthy. And I think, until something like that isn't newsworthy, then I still have work to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And what, what team are you on now?
1: So I have, have decided not to go the traditional routine route. And so I'm, I am signed to Live again, and I'm going to do live racing and supplement that with guest riding. But I get to race on the pro level and do my advocacy and get paid to do both. And so I feel like I have won whatever I was trying to win and it's much better than whatever I thought I was doing to begin with. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk about your Do Better Together like project. I think it's, it's super cool. Can you tell people about it?
1: So Do Better Together is a virtual ride series. And a lot of people think that means that it's like, oh, you just ride your own Zwift all the time. <laughs> That's not quite it. Although Zwift is a part of it. But the idea is that the winter is really the hardest time to train if you don't live in a beautifully warm place all the time, right? <laughs> um yep. and so I designed it to give myself and others motivation during those those winter months. I just do it in January, February, and March every year. And so you've got like this group of people who are all trying to achieve individual goals. So you decide what your goal is. And the whole point of it was that data is not super important and that your goal is whatever you want it to be. Success looks however you want it to look. And so some people are like, like my husband's goal is he wants to ride his bike every day this week. And for him, that's a big deal because it's winter and he doesn't ride every day. (laughs) And and, and he's been doing it. It's been really awesome to see. And then my goal is to not procrastinate (laughs) my Mm -hmm. training rides.
0: I totally do that too. It's like, I have a certain time that I say I'm going to get out and then somehow it's like been an hour or two and it's like, God, I haven't gotten on my ride yet. <laughs> yeah. So today I technically did not fully succeed in that, but it's only because my husband decided
1: he wanted to ride with me and <laughs> I wanted to support that. And so I had to wait for him to first put his bike back together from our trip. <laughs> oh, no. So there was a little procrastination, which is why I was a little behind. So I'm sorry, but we got out and we got, we went for a nice ride and it was great. But like some other people have goals, like just doing yoga or like, um, you can like clean your bike or like whatever is like a challenge for you to get motivated to do And that. And my goal is no more important than anybody else's goal. I think for me, the stigma of like, oh, she wants to go pro. So her thing matters was really annoying to me because it's like, no, everybody's thing also, you know, their stuff matters, too, because it's hard for you to do whatever the thing you can't seem to get done also. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're all just kind of rooting for each other. And we've got this little group of folks that we're you know, doing better together. It's very <laughs> I love a good catchphrase. But as a, of, mm-hmm. as a part of it, I'm working with Liv and Giant and they're giving away letting me give away two bikes this year. Oh, and cool there's monthly prizes and SRAM is helping letting me give away a group set to whoever does. I do, I do two Zwift rides per challenge week. And so there's three of them, three challenge weeks. So there's six Swift rides. So if you do three of the six and you're also doing do better together, then you can win a group set. So today I think I've given away four bikes, a group set and a bunch of other monthly prizes over where, the years. Where can
0: people yeah. sign up for this? Do better
1: or you can tr- find it at acquitbrownfox.com which is my just regular website
0: cool and everything we've been mentioning is going to be in the show notes I also wanted to talk about your podcast a little bit yes so, I'm
1: recording the first episode of the year tomorrow I'm really excited
0: yeah so how, how long have you been doing your podcast and what inspires you for your podcast the most so I
1: started it in
0: the fall of 2018 the
1: idea was that I felt like my story was starting to get very you know in the tokenizing realm or had been in the tokenizing realm for a really long time. And mm-hmm. it was this idea. is like, I'm not the only black woman that rides bikes. You know, I'm not the only woman of color that, that rides or even races bikes. And so I wanted to give people more stories of women of color that were doing awesome things in bikes be it riding them, racing them, fixing them, advocating for them, whatever, like there's just so many people that are doing really awesome things. So I wanted to give people access to these, these amazing humans. And so I just interview women of color and pretty much ask them about their bike stories of like how they got into bikes and like, you know, what they're doing now and like where that journey has taken them. And it's like, I learned so much every time I talk to somebody, like things that I didn't know. And some of these people are people I've known for years and like pretty close friends. And I feel like I learned something really fun um, every time I interview a new person. So I'm really excited.
0: Cool. And where's the best place for people to connect with you so they can follow your awesome year that you have lined up? <laughs> so
1: I guess the universal resource for me is aquickbrownfox.com. Not the Quick Brown Fox, but a Quick Brown Fox. Okay. And I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at I Suppose. It's a pun because, you know, it's me. So A Y E, which are the first three letters of my name, suppose. A-Y-E-S-U-P-P-O-S-E. And yeah, I think between those two things, you could find me somehow (laughs) if you really
0: wanted to. Awesome. And yeah, people should definitely go check out your blog on a quickbrownfox.com slash blog too. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and talk about all of these really interesting and really important topics. Thank you for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and you now feel a little bit more educated and empowered to take action, to listen more and to follow what Aisha is doing. 2020 has been an insane year. There's been lots of things that have happened in the world and I think that it's important that we continue to have these uncomfortable conversations, to be there for each other as human beings and to speak up whenever we don't agree with something. Why people have a lot of work to do, but I think that we are on the right track and we are beginning to move in the right direction, but it's going to mean momentum. It's going to mean continuing to do this. It's not just putting an Instagram post up and, and absolving yourself from doing anything. It's continuing to educate yourself, to speak up and to vote. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth and the mission to be better every day. We'll see you next week.